I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Maris Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, the NFL tackled by new allegations of entrenched racism. USA Today NFL reporter Tyler Dragon on Coach Gruden's racist, misogynistic, homophobic, and every other kind of phobic emails. And Wesley's new reporting on why black players were being paid less than white players in concussion settlements. Is America's favorite sport also its most racist? Today, we have with us one of the best up-and-coming NFL reporters in the country to talk about racism in America's favorite sport. Tyler Dragon joins us. So uh, we are going to get into the news out of the NFL in a second. Uh, the Gruden emails, Black players being paid less in concussion settlements, um, and just entrenched racism in general. But... We're going to start with the NBA's favorite anti-vaxxer, Keith. The Brooklyn Nets today uh, said that Kyrie Irving, one of their biggest stars, uh, they kind of laid down the gauntlet a little bit. Kyrie uh, has been a very, very vocal anti-vaxxer. He has said he refuses to to get vaccinated for COVID-19, and he was willing to sit out at least half of the season because New York state has a vaccine mandate. You can, you are not allowed to uh, participate in professional sports in New York state. If you're not vaccinated and Kyrie Irving said that he was willing to sit out all of the Nets home games uh, this season, if that were, if that were the case, well, the Nets have responded and said that if you don't want to play any home games at all, then you don't need to play any games. So either it's all or nothing for Kyrie Irving, uh, Tyler, we'll start with you. What do you think is going to be the the, the 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 end game here? Do you think Kyrie plays this year or does he sit out? I'm just going to be honest. I'm kind of tired of Ty- Kyrie from the earth being flat to him leaving Cleveland, a good situation with LeBron James. I'm getting real sick and tired of Kyrie. And he's being selfish. There is no I in team of uh, From my knowledge, I know the Brooklyn Nets, all of their players have been vaccinated and it's the New York, you know, mandate that you have to be vaccinated to play uh, indoors. And he is compromising his team. The Nets are a championship caliber team. A lot of people expect them to be in the thick of things once May and June roll around in the NBA playoffs and NBA finals. And without him, that severely hinders Uh, their championship um, aspirations. So Kyrie really needs to look in the mirror and stop being selfish. And, you know, getting a vaccine will not only help his team, but help him. (laughs) Um, The coronavirus, as we all know, it is really affecting the Black community. And he can send a positive message by getting vaccinated to some of the Black people that are still hesitant to get vaccinated. So he has a huge platform and for him to change his mind and go out in public and say, you know what, I've done my research, I've talked to medical professionals and I have gone ahead to decide to get vaccinated. That will have a resounding impact on the black community and a lot of people that are hesitant to get vaccinated like Kyrie is. So he is really missing the mark and missing an opportunity. And it's just, Kyrie can always say, you know, he's a deep thinker, he's a philosophical guy, but a lot of his, you know, thinking is just real backwards in my opinion. I had this conversation a little bit with with Mara earlier. I actually believe 
that Kyrie Irving, that what you said about his influence and his uh, and, and his following, particularly among a certain segment of our community, and especially among a certain segment of, of Black men, uh, makes it actually less likely that he that that he will relent and that he will play this year. If you look at social media today, if you look at uh, if you look at a lot of co- a lot of the commentary around from fans, I'm talking about specifically fans around Ky- Kyrie Irving, they are what they are saying is he speaks for us. There, we we know that there is a heavy uh, a heavy anti-vax sentiment among a certain portion of people in our community. We know that that we know that that's the case. He's become the poster boy for anti-vax in the black community. Uh, among sports fans, do you do you agree with that? Do you think do you, do you think that that's that that's accurate? The problem is he's on the wrong side of science, and later on he's going to be on the wrong side of history, and that's the issue that he needs to. Uh, he's eventually going to have to wrestle with because eventually he's going to realize that his decision was wrong. Tyler, I love I love how direct you are. <laughs> This is our first time having you on, and you're just like, look, he's on the wrong side of science. He's wrong. I'm tired of his shit. Like, next. (laughs) (laughs) I get that a lot. uh, When I interview NFL players and coaches, they all tell me I have direct questions, and I'm very direct. I I just shouldn't get straight to the point. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I love All it. right, so let's so let's get directly into into the NFL since since we like to be direct. I wish that this was an NFL show where we were going to talk about what happened over the weekend because I could certainly uh, use the time Ooh. take the time to talk about how Wes's favorite team, the Cleveland Browns, lost in their AFC North rivals, the Pittsburgh Steelers. My favorite oh, team finally <laughs> finally won a game, but that's not why we're here today. We so can create, we can create create a run tell this sports. <laughs> You can run with that. <laughs> who did the Browns lose to? Right. I forgot. That's right. Who, who did they lose? It don't matter who they lost to. They lost. Who they lose who? to? Oh, they lost to the LA Chargers. I just wanted to throw that in there. Tyler, to, for for background, Tyler comes from Tyler comes from NFL stock. His father is an NFL alumni and played for the uh, then San Diego Chargers. Uh, so this is so so he was he was born into this. He was he didn't choose this life. This life chose him. Has he ever taught you about how to interact with players as a, a sports journalist based on his experience on the other side of the microphone? Has he ever given you any tips about that? No, um, but as a, I wasn't a former NFL player, but as a former collegiate athlete, I kind of know what players want to talk about and when and where to approach them on certain subjects. So I kind of had that feel, but that is a good question. So... Let's talk, let's talk about John Gruden. John Gruden, for those who are listening who, who have not followed this story and may not know, John Gruden is a longtime NFL coach, the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, and it was discovered over the weekend that he had, for years, made a number of uh, racist statements in emails while he was actually working as an analyst for ESPN Actually, uh, John Gruden worked at ESPN at the same time. Both Tyler and I worked at ESPN back in 2011, which, which is when some of these um, emails date date back to. I'm going to give you some quotes, and I'll say the words so that uh, so that Tyler doesn't have to say them, or nobody, none of my coworkers have have to have to use the potty mouth words uh, that John Gruden used. 
John Gruden in his emails, this is according to the, to the New York Times, uh, called Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, a faggot. That's a quote. That's not my words. It's John Gruden's. He called the NFL commissioner a clueless anti-football pussy. He said that Roger Goodell should not have pressured Jeff Fisher, who was the head coach of the Rams at the time, to draft queers. And that was a reference to Michael Sam, who's the first openly gay player drafted into the NFL back in 2014. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. He criticizes the NFL over... Uh, he, he uses homophobic slurs over and over again. He criticizes the NFL over their efforts to end uh, to end concussions and to uh, and to take player safety seriously. He criticized Eric Reed and a number of other players and former players for kneeling in their protests during the national anthem, which was their right to do. Uh, and because all of this came to light, and, and originally this came to light because uh, it started with an email that he sent to. Uh, the former president of the Washington football team, which was then the Washington Redskins, which is which we all know was a slur was a slur in and of itself. But this started with an email from John Gruden criticizing the uh, the head of the NFLPA, Demora Smith, by calling him by saying he had lips as big as a, as big as Michelin tires. Demora Smith is a black man and, a, and, and an attorney who leads the players' union, and this is what an, a former NFL head coach. Uh, thought thought of him and, and was willing to express in in emails. That's a that's a lot. Um, well, just the fact that they were in emails, like he was. He who was, writes this he stuff down? John Gruden. Clearly, <laughs> we're not even talking down. about like recordings of conversations or somebody overheard him say. Like, who writes this stuff down? That's blowing my mind. A racist. A homophobic, misogynistic man writes that down. So, so, so let's so let's start right there, right? So, you said you said a few things. You said racist, you said homophobic, and you said and you said misogynistic. John Gruden, we found out about about the the racist email that he sent about uh, D. Smith. We found out about that last um, what last Thursday or Friday? I want to say it was last Friday that came out. John Gruden still coached on Sunday. He still coached, even though that this was in public public sphere, and even though the Raiders uh, knew about that email be even before it became public. So the racism was okay, and then the rest of the stuff came out. And we were we were today going to have a conversation. Actually, the, the, originally we were going to have a conversation here about Dave Chappelle uh, and some of the things that he said in his in his most recent special. Among them was pointing out the difference between responses to racism and violence against African-Americans versus uh, violence and, 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 or not even actually violence, but, but jokes or criticism of other, of other communities. Where, where's the line? Where's, where's the line? Why was John Gruden allowed to coach on Sunday after we knew he had said racist things but he was not allowed to, to make it through the week after the rest of the stuff came out. Yeah, if I travel to the Raiders game this weekend, I want to ask Mark Davis that question. I want to ask Roger Goodell in the NFL that exact question. Why is it okay to call DeMore Smith dumb Morris Smith and to say his lips were the size of Michelin tires? But then when you talk about, you know, gays and lesbians and women it's like oh wait 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 hold up that's where we draw the line they're both bad 
he should have been on the sideline on Sunday. Not to mention the NFL is over 70% black players. The Las Vegas Raiders, I don't know the specific number, but they have a whole lot of black players on their team. Their best players are black aside of their cars. So the fact that he was able to coach is damaging in itself. And it shows why they lost because a lot of the team wasn't focused on the game and they didn't respond to an NFL coach that just sent, well, got revealed that sent racist emails over a period of seven years. Like I mentioned, what's blowing my mind is the fact that this was in emails, right? It's so easy to use an email to expose someone. So what I'm wondering is what does the fact that there were so many messages that were sent over such a long period of time and that nobody caught wind of it, not in the press, uh, what does that say about what's really happening in the NFL with the coaches and the fact that this man worked for ESPN? What's really happening at these sports networks and in sports coverage in covering sports that, as you noted, Tyler, are, are played mostly by black players? How endemic is this if this man could do this for so long in writing in black and white and it was not made public until now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wrote a column on USA Today SportsPlus.com and to really illuminate the fact that this amplifies a larger issue, that the NFL, the executive office, the coaches on the sidelines, the GMs, is pretty much a white man country club with like-minded individuals. I mean, not to mention those emails. He was also talking about former President Barack Obama. He was talking about pre the current president, Joe Biden. He sent negative uh, comments about players protesting police brutality and racial injustice. And he spoke uh, about all those things to like-minded individuals. He felt comfortable emailing Bruce Allen that language, that rhetoric, because he was around individuals that he felt as though had the same mindset in the same space where individuals think like that. We're talking about the same league that blackballed Colin Kaepernick, that uh, blackballed pretty much Eric Reed currently right now. This league has shown time and time again that, yes, Black players can play on the field, but when it comes with racial issues or equality, the owners really don't care about that. By and large, most of the owners were voters of a particular president who also had negative comments about Blacks, Hispanics, and other uh, countries. So this is just amplifies a bigger problem where the NFL majority, the guys wearing the suits in the corporate offices, it's a white boy country club, and they all, not all, but most of them, think the same way as John Gruden. So go, going back to Keith's question, I wonder, and, maybe, and this is kind of the cynic in me a little bit, right? But, but I wonder how much of it wasn't even the idea that it was because the additional emails came out disparaging all these other communities, but how much was it that in these emails he was disparaging Roger Goodell, right? The idea that the, the Raiders have to have a relationship with the league office, uh, with the NFL writ large, that, you know, sure, a guy who's a head coach who back when he was doing commentary was saying some stuff about the head of the Players Association. But the idea that I, I guess part of me, the cynic in me thinks without those Goodell emails, maybe nothing happens. But then secondarily, part of me also thinks it might have just been the confluence of all of these things. 
Right. Not necessarily that now that he's attacking women or LGBT people, that now that is enough, but rather that attacking one black person in a racist manner was not enough in and of itself. Right. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and, and so I do wonder what you think the interplay is at the league level. Right. We know these teams can kind of do what they want to do and how they want you. Know, but but I do wonder what sense you have about um, where the NFL would have been on these things and what type of pressure the Raiders would have been coming under. Based yeah, on that, that that's a good question. I don't think John Gruden is alone in these emails. I think he's the scapegoat because of his disparaging remarks towards NFL commissioner Roger Goodell and the concussion issue with the NFL right now. He was talking about player safety and raising uh, light on that he disagreed with the whole concussion policy that the NFL has. So not only are you talking about gays, lesbians, women, blacks, you're talking about the NFL commissioner and a concussion uh, policy where the NFL has lost a whole lot of money over concussions. So you you have a head coach, a very popular, marketable head coach that is sharing beliefs that is totally contrary where the NFL wants to go. That's a perfect pivot to uh, one of the things that we also wanted to get to here. Wes had a, had a piece for, for 60 Minutes recently where he, where he got into the idea of uh, race norming in the, NF, in the NFL. And the concept of race norming uh, essentially is using a different baseline uh, on a, a, or a different standard of, of, of determining intelligence or potential brain activity for black players compared with white players as it related to the NFL's concussion settlement with the, with the players. Wes, can you tell us about the story that, that you wrote and sure. what role did race norming actually play in what the NFL did? Of course. And so you got to go back first and remember or place this in the context of the NFL concussion settlement right, that at this juncture, at this point in time, the NFL has kind of accepted that, um, or has agreed to enter into a settlement with former players um, to say that if they, if they are cognitively impaired and they can prove it, the NFL is willing to give them monetary payouts. Um, former players who played for a certain period of years, right? And so as part of that, you now have all these players who are coming forward, uh, getting themselves tested, hiring attorneys, and they are submitting claims to the NFL where they have to show and document that, yes, I'm cognitively impaired to a certain level. I qualify for a payout. So the NFL is set up, um, and, and the NFL and also like the overseer and the courts, this remarkable system has been set up where the players come and they can apply. They have to pass a certain level of tests. There's a bunch of doctors who are like the official panel and they decide. And But one thing that has come out in terms of how these tests are being evaluated, how they're being graded, is that they're being graded using something called a race norm. And the concept of race norming was invented previously. Race norm attempts to use race as like a proxy for all of these things, to understand that when a doctor's looking at, a, at the average black American, they may be looking at a different set of underlying circumstances than the average white American. But instead, and so it's supposed to neutralize disparities in healthcare, right? We're supposed to, the point is to give the black people better um, and more accurate healthcare. What happened in this case is the NFL said, well, because the average IQ score it, for a black American is lower than the average IQ score for a white American, an NFL player 
has to, a black NFL player has to prove more cognitive damage than a white NFL player in order to get a payout. And so you could have two former players walk in, get the exact same thing on the test. Both have the doctors say they have Alzheimer's, they, they rank here. And in a white player, they'll say, all right, here's your million dollar check. And for a black player, they might say, okay, you don't qualify. Um, and so this was something that didn't initially come out. Then the player, some of the former players and their attorneys started figuring out this was happening. And it's how did, I'm sorry, Wes, how did they figure it out? Was it disclosed to them openly or did they have to do their own kind of investigating? So this wasn't initially disclosed to them. The doctors who were doing these reviews, they received um, guidance from the league telling them to do the reviews this way, to use race norms. Um, and then some of these players were submitting their paperwork and they were getting denied. And it was coming out in these appeals and the way the NFL was arguing against the payments that, well, if you corrected it with this norm, he really wouldn't qualify or X, Y. And that's when I think a lot of the former players started realizing what was happening. The leagues agreed to stop using these race norms, but you still have any number of these players. It's now been two, three, four years since they got tests showing they have Alzheimer's or dementia and they've received no payment, they've been denied, and they're still kind of waiting around. And so it remains it remains unresolved. So once it was exposed, did anything change? The league is kind of saying two different things at once, right? So it's saying, look, we didn't deny anyone payment based on these race norms. And also we're not gonna use them anymore because we get why people think that's discriminatory. And if we discriminate against anyone, we're gonna make it right, right? We didn't do it, but if we did do it, we're gonna fix it. Um, and, and again, part of that is because there's an active litigation happening and so they can't really admit any wrongdoing or X, Y, and Z, right? Um, but it, it remains, I think it's an interesting window into the complication of the NFL concussion issue that this is an issue where, look, we still don't know that much about the science around concussions, all things considered, in part because to do the best examinations, you need a dead person's brain. You know, when I sit with these, sat with these former players, there was no question they were cognitively impaired. You could see it, you could feel it as you talk to them. And yet here they are sitting here unable uh, to get this payment, even after the league has agreed to pay. As of today, it's still an ongoing grapple at the Players Association that the attorneys for these players are having to engage in, where all types of money is being spent, private mediations are happening. So here you have these former players who, by the way, are going through this, are filing these things about something that's hyper-personal. A lot of them feel very torn about the fact that they're losing their memory, they're, they're losing their cognitive impairment. These are guys, by the way, who are NFL players who came up in a bigger and better and I'm tough enough to take on anything type mentality who are now as grown men being reduced, right? Or having to accept that like, I might not remember my name in a few years or I can't open this jar of peanut butter and, and, and that they were a linebacker in the NFL, right? That it is very difficult, right? that this cognitive impairment, because it's, it's brain stuff, it's not physical, right? It's not a broken arm or broken leg, that it's causing mental health issues or alcoholism, right? Things that manifest in really difficult ways that can be hard for any of us to talk about, uh, much less people who kind of been conditioned in public to be tough and big and I've got this and I'm not worried about it. And so you think about it, after all that, to come forward, to admit to the league, look, I'm impaired, I need help. And then have that stretch on two years, three years, have the league send paperwork back. No, we don't believe you. <laughs> it's a really, really difficult thing for a lot of these guys. So even if they're all made whole a year from now or six months from now, or even tomorrow, there's still been this period of time where they've had to fight to get something that they already had to fight for previously. 
Mm. So when you look at these two things together, these two stories that we've discussed, the the Gruden story and this race norming story, um, we're all very familiar with what happened to Colin Kaepernick. Um, I have a two part question, and and it's for for any of you because you're you're all sports fans. Um, the first thing is, you know, what is what has to change? in the NFL, because it's very clear that there's a deep racism that's entrenched. Um, when you look at the racial makeup of the players and you look at the racial makeup of the owners and you look at the way the players are treated um, in the ways we've just discussed here today. So first is what needs to change. And second, what do sports fans, what can sports fans do? Um, because as an kind of an observer on the sidelines, no pun intended, it appears to me that sports fans aren't even willing to stop watching the sport. Like they're willing to make zero sacrifice. They they will post on Twitter, the Twitter fingers are on fire, right? They'll be upset about it all day, but then they'll still watch on Sunday. So I'll take, I'll take the first part of that. In, in the last maybe five, maybe a little bit longer than that years, um, actually definitely long, longer than five years, I've written about NFL, an NFL team changing hands because of, uh, in part because of uh, racism uh, in, in the owner's booth, in the owner's suite. Um, I have written about the, um, I've written about the, 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 the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, over and over again, I've, I've written about the, uh, the Rooney rule and how owners set up a system where they were supposed to be bringing in more candidates, more minority candidates for, uh, to, for head coaching jobs and how that has, has not happened uh, over and over again. Again, I've written about these things. The common thread between all of these things has been that the ownership has not changed. And you can set out any rule that you, that you want to set out. You can put anything that you want to, that you want to put in place. But at the end of the day, the NFL is run by 32 primarily white males, okay? Um, there are no African-American principal owners in the NFL. There are some, uh, some uh, minority owners, but definitely no, no principal owners. I've written in the past about the need for a Rooney rule for ownership, which I, which I think should be implemented. Teams don't change hands that often in the NFL, Right, because you've got to have billions of dollars, and it's not in their cash cows. You you own an NFL team; it gives you instant access to a lot of money and a, and a lot of power. And people aren't willing to give that up if they don't have to. But but to the extent that when shares of teams change hands, when minority stakes of teams change hands, or when a team is on the market in and of itself, uh, I think the NFL owners, if they were really serious about addressing some of these issues, would set forth that no new ownership group. Could come, could come in unless there was equity participation by either uh, a, a, a woman or a member of a, a, a non-white uh, ethnic group or a member of the LGBT community or however it is that you wanted to structure that language so that you were guaranteed to not have just another white male who comes from the same privileged, powerful background that all of the current NFL owners come from. Now, there's challenges with that because, of course, that means you got to have a lot of money. <laughs> you got to, there's a, you know, like the average NFL franchise is worth north of a billion dollars. How much does uh, it so cost to get money. in on that? How much do you, it's like a house, you got to put 10% down? 
Uh, no, you've got to you've got to be able to raise all the money. <laughs> there, there's no, I mean, you can you can become a partner. You can't more you can't mortgage an, an NFL team. <laughs> That's not a thing. You it. can't put you can't put you can't put three by the Jets on credit. I can't put it on. Nah, that. you can't. There is no there is no FHA put three point five down and make payments over thirty years. It doesn't work. But there, I mean, there are there are ways to finance such a transaction. But you have to. But, but you know, you have you still be coming to the table with a lot of cash. Like that's a, that's a thing, right? To be a member of an NFL ownership group. So that's a so that's a challenge. Um, as far as the as far as fans. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, like, well, number one, it's part of my profession. So, like, I actually make money writing and talking about sports, so I can't look away. But if the, the truth is, if I didn't, would I, would I look away? I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't. And the NFL is, is as much cultural phenomenon as it is sport, as it is industry. I agree with you completely on that, Keith. And I think that the, the reality is, right, I, there's not, I don't think there's going to be, if, if there ever was going to be, and I would have been skeptical at the time, I think that if there ever was going to be big fan backlash, I think it would have been in the last few years around the Kaepernick stuff, when you had a deeply unpopular president picking fights on the internet with kneeling players at the time, at a time when we were seeing all these videos, right? This wasn't the initial Kaepernick stuff. This is like five years out. <laughs> and, and now it was Kaepernick versus Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that if there was ever going to be some mass movement around issues of racism or something like that, I think that's what it was going to be. I think the concussion issue is interesting and is separate and is different. And I think that's one of the reasons the league takes it so seriously and is so aggressive about this and is so aggressive about its messaging. Because it does, because I do think, and I don't know what will happen in the future, but I do think this is an issue that has a salience that it actually could upend American football the way it, uh, the way it is understood, right? I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell or someone predicted that one day we'll look back at the NFL like people look back at the gladiators. Like we'll go like, that was clearly beneath us as a society and not a thing we should have done. And, and it is, and look, and there is a non-0% chance, I actually might suggest more likely than not that in our lifetime, we will, you know, receive the definitive medical explanation, like the definitive medical proof that like playing football leads to cognitive decline, full stop, period. Like this is a sport that kills the people who play it, right? And suddenly that creates a different like moral calculation, right? We're already seeing, you know, this is the first generation, not even full generation, the first few years of parents who have kids who are aware of CT concussions and having to make decisions about if their kids will play football. My kids won't play football. I don't have kids, right? Like, but like they won't. I'm I played soccer for years. I'm worried about the headers, right? Like my kids might not even play soccer, right? What it, like 10 years, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out of that, like that's the type of stuff that might potentially change culture. What's well, don't you don't you have a little I'm sorry, don't you brothers. And they both Right, and your one of your younger brothers didn't he play Pop Warner with my with yes my yeah. so 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 this is so this is fascinating. Like bringing this to make it very personal, I previously lived in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is where Wes is Wes is from. My oldest son actually played Pop Warner football with Wes's younger brother on on the same team. Right. Today, wait, wait, I don't wait, think wait, 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 your oldest son played football with Wes's younger brother. Correct. How old is your oldest son? 
My oldest is, what is nobody now? 20... 23, 24? 24, 24. Okay, got it, makes mm -hmm. sense. Okay. Yes, yeah, do some math. <laughs> you know, and it, yeah, it takes yeah, me a yeah, while, do, you see how slow the wheels turn. And do a little, and do a little bit. No, but, but the reason I wanted, to, I wanted to point that out, right? Today, the, 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 the baby, the little, the little one who's like toddling around here now has about a 0.0003% chance of putting on a football like this, it, it, like what, what we know today in the distance between Wes's brother and my son playing football together and Wes now saying, my kids won't play football and me now having, having the, 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 the little baby, the one-year-old. And like what, the, what we know now about the impact of playing football on, on bodies and on brains and especially on the brains of kids who were that age, you know, you're talking about these kids, they were, you know, 12, 13 years old when they, when they were playing, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that, that we would make the same decision now, um, you know, to, to, to allow that. Um, and so what Wes is talking about is the idea that you just might not have the labor force. You imagine, just might not, like, imagine 10 years from now, like we're making this decision today, right? Imagine brain experiment. Imagine 10 years from now, Tom Brady calls a press conference and says, I have dementia. I'm not gonna remember my name in three years. Right. Imagine you have another Junior Seau, another Aaron Hernandez, another like the reality is the world's going to keep happening. Right. They're going to keep being incidents. They're going to keep being players who are beloved, but and who suffer. But now they have the now they have the language to talk about what they're going through. They have some community to talk about it. They're not going to necessarily suffer in silence the way some of these prior generations did. Right. That this ball keeps rolling. Right. And so we have no idea. And then, by the way another generation of players is going to pass and some of them are going to devote and they're going to give their brains and they're going to be studied and we're going to start getting better and better, better medical information. And the more we know about this, <laughs> the fewer people are going to decide this is a thing that makes sense. And the fewer people are going to decide this is something I want to support with my dollars. I do think that the aggressiveness and the seriousness with which the NFL has taken this publicly and also how they pivoted, where they initially were like, this cannot be true, this doesn't exist, what are you talking about? And then they were like, never mind, it's definitely true, we're so sorry for when we said it wasn't, we fixed all the problems, we got new helmets and we changed the rules and like, don't worry about it, kids, keep playing football, please. To me, I think that underscores the league recognizing that it has a potentially extinction level event. Not today, not tomorrow, <laughs> but, <laughs> But that as we keep learning more about this, <laughs> it is not good for the NFL if football means brain, uh, you know, uh, brain degradation. And the more science we get, the more we start to understand that. Yeah, you don't have to think the NFL is already cognizant of this issue right now. The participants and at the peewee level, at the high school level, they're already on the decline. And 10, 15 years from now, you might be able to see, we all might be able to see that the people playing the NFL and the popularity of the sport is going to be under decline because parents aren't letting their kids play football because we now know that the concussion issue is very serious and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And 10, 15 years down the line when the Tom Brady's get old and all the star all the other star players get old and start having dementia or you know brain issues 
that's going to be another stain on the NFL. And not to mention the contract situation in the NFL. When you have baseball, when you see those baseball contracts, when you see those NBA contracts, they're much better and they're guaranteed <laughs> as opposed to the NFL. So when you look at the totality of the situation, not only do you have a concussion issue in the NFL, and then you have a diversity problem with the ownership and uh, executives, the GMs, there's a lot of issues going on with the NFL that they need to address. But that concussion issue is not going away anytime soon. Keep generously said, I had a conversation with Mara about this earlier, which made it seem like it was a two-way conversation when really he was tutoring me on the phone of course. about uh, all of this. <laughs> I was like, Mara did not participate in this. Exactly. <laughs> you know me quite well. And what I said to Keith was, I really want to, I want to have a conversation that somebody like me would want to listen to because I'm interested in news. I think the future of football is going to end up being one of the stories of our time. I walked away from this segment uh, and I told my producers, I was like, we could do a concussion piece every year for the rest of forever, right? That I think that what, like, this is a, this is a legitimacy crisis on par with, like, the Catholic Church and, and the children's scandals and that the most powerful sports league in the world, one that is, and the one that actually in the sport itself is the most, like, clearly and tangibly kind of, like, icky and that it's like, we've got these hyper big black guys crashing into each other all the time. And here we are in the, in the ownership box, eating popcorn, like, like in a way that just feels, I mean, all the professional sports have this type of dynamic to some capacity, but the NFL feels that way in a way that's different. It, I, I think that what this league does moving forward and how it convinces generations of parents to let their kids play this sport or how it attempts to do that is going to be, and, and does that turn international in a way? And unlike a lot of these other sports, there's not a lot of international expandability here. Um, this is not a sport that's played everywhere. I think it's going to be a, a fascinating kind of tale of our times. Yeah, it's interesting because the NFL can dress up how they're taking the head out of the game and, you know, get these newer fancy helmets. But you can't take the head out. Your head gets hit every play. <laughs> there's no way, there's no way to do it. You can't play football. It doesn't matter. You can't yeah. play that kind of a contact sport and not and not take blows to the head. And yeah. even if you could eliminate blows to the head, the jarring of the body. One of the things that talk about is that like your brain is basically just floating in your head. There's nothing that holds it down that ties that ties it down. Moves around. Yeah. In, right. So you can be concussed regardless whether or not you get hit to the head. Every single time somebody gets tackled on a football field, their head goes like this, and your brain is just it's sloshing right. around. And that happens 12, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 times per game. In per not practice. Not counting practice. <laughs> not, not counting not counting college. Not counting how many times it happened in college. High school. Probably, when your like brain I said, my 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 son my son and Wes's brother they were playing pop water football when they were twelve. Number thirteen, and that, and that was full full body. They were hitting tackles. They were and they were full full pads every day after school, every single day. Like, and this is stuff you know we didn't know we didn't we didn't know that much, and it wasn't that long ago. You're talking about ten years, twelve years ago. We didn't know that much then, and it's it's but we're, it's but we're gonna know ten years from now. We're in a 20 years from now, 
like this is an issue like like i said i don't know how it's going to change i don't know what it's going to look like but this conversation will look completely different when we fast forward in ways that are massive and and that and that literally could mean up to the point where there isn't an nfl the way we know i think that's on the table or maybe we'll just join the rest of the world in becoming soccer fans that could be it too I mean, I think there's a huge hole there for soccer. We know that it's a huge global sport. I feel like we could just join the rest of the world. <laughs> I mean, Good. there's an issue with soccer too, with headers. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tyler, where can people check out your work? Yeah, you can check out my work at usatodaysportsplus.com or USA Today. And as well, follow me on Twitter at, at the Tyler Dragon. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.